invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text this Lord's Day as we continue these sermons in a series, Israel Past, Present, and Future. We'll be focusing upon verses 26 through 27 this Lord's Day, Romans 11, 26 through 27. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As we have looked at Israel past, as we see in the Old Testament in redemptive history, how to Israel was given the promise of the Messiah that they were to carry from generation to generation to hold before God's people that the Messiah was coming and that was realized in the Lord Jesus as he came to earth. We've considered as well Israel present and we see that When Israel rejected the Messiah, turned their backs upon the Lord Jesus Christ, became those who joined with the Romans to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death, that uh, God's judgment fell upon Israel. And we've noted that presently, uh, Israel as a people, as a nation, is not under God's blessing, uh, but is under God's judgment because they have yet rejected as a nation. They've turned their backs upon the Messiah, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we have been most recently focusing upon Israel, future of Israel. And we have noted from the Old Testament and we've come now to the New Testament to see that God's promises of a future restoration, of a future conversion of Israel unto the Lord Jesus Christ is what uh, lies ahead of us. Uh, that this was promised in the Old Testament as we have looked at certain passages of Scripture. Now we have come to the New Testament to see the confirmation of those Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel's future salvation as a nation in Romans chapter 11. And so all Israel shall be saved. This we considered the last time we met And this all Israel uh, is not referring to uh, the new Israel, composed of uh, being the church, present church, composed of Jews and Gentiles. This is not the new Israel. This is not a remnant of Israel that shall be saved. This is all Israel as a nation, the greater part of that nation that shall be saved in the future. And according to... God's redemptive plan. Uh, God is not finished with Israel. Uh, God yet has a plan for his people to restore them unto himself. And we see in the verses that are before us, in verses 26 through 27 of Romans, that that purpose will be realized according to the covenant that God has made with his people, even from the Old Testament period of time. Let me run through you just by way of very quickly review where we have been in Romans 11 in the past sermon, just to bring us up to speed before we begin afresh in the passages before us today. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 11, may be summarized in these points. First of all, though Israel, as a nation, has rejected the Lord, has been disobedient, even though God has extended from the Old Testament period of time even into the present time, God has extended, stretched out his hand uh, all the day long 
uh, to this disobedient and covenant-breaking nation, as we see in Romans 10.21, yet he is not totally, and he's not permanently cast away his people, that covenanted nation of Israel in Romans 11.1. 1, he's not cast away his people, Paul says. Secondly, by way of review, though Israel as a nation was hardened, not all of Israel was hardened, for God has taken out from the greater part of Israel his elect, a remnant, a small remnant that Paul says, I'm even one of those uh, who God is saving. I'm one of God's elect from the greater nation, a part of Israel. And God has been throughout history since the time of Christ. He has been bringing individual Jews, those who are of Israel, uh, to himself. And so they become a part of this remnant of God's elect that he has been saving throughout history uh, from the time of Christ to the present. <clears throat> Though Israel as a nation is presently a covenant-breaking nation that has been cast out of the visible church, uh, which in Romans 11 is represented by that olive tree, Israel as a nation shall in the future be grafted back into that olive tree, back into the visible church by the mercy uh, of her covenant keeping. She's a covenant breaking nation, but he's a covenant keeping God. And he will graft her back in uh, to that olive tree from which she was taken, Paul says. And in this way, uh, God has purposed that the nation of Israel will be saved. Namely, as he says in verses 25 and 26, in this way, in bringing the Gentile nations throughout the whole world in the future, bringing the Gentile nations unto himself, unto Christ, and at the same time bringing Israel, this people, unto the Lord Jesus Christ or at that same period of time unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, by way of, again, this is not so much review because this is what we're going to be looking at in the sermon today. The conversion of the nation of Israel is not simply asserted by Paul for the first time, but basically he demonstrates that the salvation of Israel was promised in the Old Testament. And so he goes back to the covenant that God made with his people Israel in order to demonstrate that the nation of Israel with whom that covenant was made, they are the covenant breakers. He's the covenant keeper and he's going to restore. He's going to bring unto salvation the same nation uh, that was broken off uh, from that olive tree. He's going to bring them unto salvation and graft them back into that olive tree, his visible church. So there are two questions as we look at our text today in Romans 11, verses 26 through 27. There are two questions that we'd like to ask and seek to answer by God's grace. First of all, who will save all Israel as a nation? In verse 26. And the second question, why will all Israel as a nation be saved? Verse 27. So let us uh, consider our first question then uh, today. Who will save all Israel as a nation? Verse 26 says, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. <clears throat> when the Gentile nations of the world and Israel as a nation come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will be joined together into, as we've noted, the same olive tree. Not different olive trees, uh, not 
not, uh, again, two different peoples of God, they will be joined together as one people of God, Gentiles and Jews, even as in the church today, uh, there is one people of God, different nationalities, true, but one people of God uh, that are joined together. And so likewise in the future, uh, when the Gentile nations, the fullness of the Gentile nations is brought unto Christ, and when Israel as a nation is brought to Christ, they're not going to be brought into their own separate, distinct olive trees. They're going to be brought together into the same olive tree. In fact, the, the, the olive tree from which Israel was cast out, from which the branches were broken off, will be the same olive tree into which Israel will be grafted again. As we noted, uh, I think last Lord's Day or the last time that we met, uh, Christ does not have two brides. Uh, he only has one bride. And so Israel is not one bride and the church a separate bride. There's only one bride of Christ. The Lord Jesus is not a polygamist. Uh, there is only one bride of Jesus Christ. And that is composed of both Jew and Gentile alike. Contrary to dispensationalism, we've talked a little bit about dispensationalism uh, in the past, but contrary to dispensationalism, the visible church, that is the olive tree, uh, did not begin in Acts chapter 2, but was brought into being by God from the time of the Old Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, where Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin, he says, and he calls uh, the Israelites in the wilderness, he calls them the church in the wilderness. At the time of Moses, they were the church in the wilderness, the same term that is used many times throughout the New Testament for the church at this present time, subsequent to Christ, uh, ecclesia is, is again the Greek, uh, is the Greek word for church. It's that same word that's used here in Acts 7 when we read, <clears throat> This is he that is Moses that was in the church in the wilderness. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, the Septuagint was translated uh, somewhere in the third century BC. And in the Septuagint, the Greek word for church, ecclesia, is used some 76 times uh, in that translation from Hebrew into Greek. That tells us it being translated that many times uh, in using that term, ecclesia, the same one that is used in the New Testament for the church, tells us that God was preparing uh, his people not for something that was entirely new, something that did not exist prior to the coming of Christ, there were going to be things new about the church in the New Testament, but the, but the substance, uh, that essential, uh, uh, that essence of the church began in the Old Testament, it carries over into the New Testament. For example, and as I said, there are 76 times, we're not going to read all 76 places in the Greek Septuagint where uh, the word ecclesia occurs, but let me give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament and the use of ecclesia. First Chronicles 28.8 reads, and this is David, the context is David drawing to the end of his reign and uh, he is uh, at this time 
preparing the people to transfer power uh, from himself to his son Solomon. And this is what David says. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the congregation, ecclesia, the congregation or ecclesia of the Lord, and in the audience of our God, keep and seek for all commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess the good land and leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. The ecclesia of the Lord. Then in 1 Kings 8, 14, this is referring, this is Solomon now speaking in 1 Kings 8, 14. And this is at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon, we read here, and the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation, the ecclesia, the church of Israel, and all the congregation, that is the church, ecclesia of Israel stood. Now this may, to some, seem like a novel idea to understand that the church began in the Old Testament rather than um, beginning in the New Testament. But I assure you it is not something new, it's not something novel, it's not something that um, I innovatively came up with. Our Reformed uh, and Presbyterian forefathers referred to the church as having its beginning in the Old Testament. The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which is our confession of faith, in 1647, refers to the people of Israel in the Old Testament as, quote, a church under age in comparison to the present church, which is a church that has come of age. But the church of the Old Testament was a church under age, a childish uh, in comparison to the present, a childish, a church uh, that was being taught by signs, uh, by uh, ceremonies, uh, many uh, of these types of feast days and, and this type of thing. Uh, these were object lessons for a church under age, uh, much as we draw pictures, maybe for younger children to understand ideas and concepts. So the Lord was drawing pictures for his people uh, in the Old Testament of Christ who was to come. So as a church under age in chapter 19, section three of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then in chapter 20, of the Westminster Confession of Faith, section one, declares that the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. The Jewish church was subjected. And when speaking of the visible church in chapter 25, section two of the Westminster Confession. We, as it being our confession, and being the confession, again, not simply of individuals, but at that time, uh, the nations in 1647, it being the confession of faith of entire nations of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and the churches of those nations, and has been, again, the confession of faith subsequent to that time, to the present time, of faithful Presbyterians since that time, the Con Westminster Confession of Faith. It declares, and we confess, that the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, Catholic means universal, so it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, but it's talking about Catholic in the sense, presently the church is not confined to one nation. The church is throughout the world, so it's Catholic in that sense. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, and then this parenthetical note, not confined to one nation, that is the visible church is not now confined to one nation as before under the law. 
in the Old Testament, under the law, it was the visible church, and yet it was confined to one nation. Now, under the gospel, it's extended beyond Israel to include the nations of the world, and yet it's the same visible church. Yeah, in many ways it looks different uh, than in the Old Testament. But as to the essence, as being the people of God, uh, we are, again, united with God's people in the Old Testament as one people. Thus, when Jesus declared in Matthew 16, 18 that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, I submit that he was not saying that he will begin to build his church, his ecclesia, that was as if it was non-existent at that time, but rather I submit that what Jesus is saying is that he will continue to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it because the church did exist but he was going to continue to build his church uh, through his uh, death and through his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. The olive tree, which as we said, represents the visible church in Romans chapter 11, in other words, began in the Old Testament. For Paul says that the natural branches which would be the Jews at the time of Christ, had been in the olive tree, which is the visible church, had been in the olive tree and yet were broken off from it. How could they be broken off from something that did not exist? They could only be broken off from that which did exist. In fact, the root of that olive tree in Romans chapter 11 is God's covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Old Testament saints. They're the root. That must mean that the olive tree began in the Old Testament if they're the root. Must mean that the visible church existed in the Old Testament. In other words, the same olive tree continued into the New Testament from which Israel as a nation was broken off for unbelief and Gentiles grafted in due to their professed faith in Christ along with presently a remnant of believing Jews who trust in Jesus Christ. And yet in the future, there is going to be a grafting in to that same olive tree that same visible church, a grafting in of the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel as a nation. One other, before we get to the deliverer uh, who will save his people, one other point that I'd like to make is that the visible church is also called in the New Testament uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God here upon the earth. There is a heavenly kingdom, uh, a manifestation of a heavenly kingdom, but there's also a manifestation of God's kingdom here upon the earth, and that's found in the visible church here upon the earth. <clears throat> in Matthew 21, verse 43, you may remember the words of the Lord Jesus as, that he spoke to the Jewish leaders uh, who represented Israel at that time, when he said, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The kingdom of God, the visible kingdom of God, or the visible church, will be taken from you, the Jews, Israel at this time, as a nation, and given to a nation that's composed, again, of Gentiles, uh, primarily or mostly. I mean, uh, early on, uh, was primarily Jews that were brought into the church after the the death, resurrection, and ascension 
of heaven. But as the Lord said, the, the kingdom would spread, the kingdom of Christ would spread, not confined to Israel, Jerusalem, to Samaria, but beyond to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the kingdom of God is spread throughout the whole world. And uh, so, again, uh, the visible church was taken, the kingdom of God was taken from the Jews at that time who rejected the Lord Jesus and given to a nation uh, that is uh, Gentile believers uh, who uh, uh, come in, uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and again, notice <clears throat> and that in the transfer of this kingdom, there's not two kingdoms, one for Israel and one for the church. There's only one kingdom, just like there's only one church, uh, just like there's only one olive tree, just like there's only one bride of Christ, one kingdom. The kingdom will be taken from you and given to this Gentile, this, this church that will be composed mostly of Gentiles. And Paul says that that would be the case in order to make Israel jealous, that they might be brought as a nation unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, let's turn to consider uh, from our text who this deliverer is in verse 26. Romans eleven twenty-six, And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. So this uh, comes from, again, as it is written from the Old Testament. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. <clears throat> Who is this deliverer that will uh, rescue, that will deliver Israel from her sins? Uh, well, I would submit to you, you remember that we, uh, a few weeks ago in Isaiah 19.20, uh, there was a deliverer uh, who would come to, in the future, come to the nation of Egypt and would deliver Egypt as a nation, as a people who have covenanted to be God's people sometime in the future, that there would come one as well to the Egyptians to deliver the Egyptians from their sins. It's the same deliverer. Uh, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. The same Savior is promised here to Israel in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, as is promised to the Gentile nations, as represented in Isaiah 19 by the nations that are actually spoken of there as Egypt and Assyria, two enemies of God's people historically. In the Old Testament, God is going to bring them through the deliverer unto himself. And so the same deliverer is spoken of here in Romans 11, the Lord Jesus who will save his people from their sins. You see, dear ones, the same gospel that saves the Gentile nations will save Israel as a nation. There's only one gospel. This is, there's only one church. There are not different gospels, one for Israel and one for the Gentiles. There are not two different ways of being saved. There's only one way of being saved, and that's through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Israel will be saved in the future as a nation through faith and trust in Jesus alone. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One gospel of salvation, only one that can rescue and save, the gospel of Jesus Christ will rescue and save Gentiles and will rescue and save the Jews. I submit that Whereas supersessionists, and uh, we 
talked about supersessionist, th this particular uh, interpretation of uh, Israel. Uh, that particular view, you recall, says that the church has uh, superseded, replaced uh, Israel so that there are no uh, future promises of Israel's salvation in the future, that particular position. And it, it is an increasingly popular position today, and even amongst Reformed and Presbyterian people, uh, I don't believe that that's what the scripture teaches. I believe that there is a future uh, for uh, Israel in, in, in the future, uh, that uh, there is a salvation that will come to Israel as we've been reading and as we've been looking at these passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, the, we've looked at supersessionists. We've also looked at dispensationalists. Supersessionists err in not seeing a future salvation of Israel as a nation. Dispensationalists err also in seeing, a, uh, in seeing a purpose of God for the nation of Israel as distinct from God's purpose uh, for his church. As if, again, there's two different purposes of God um, with regard to Israel as opposed to the uh, church. Whereas the right and scriptural view, I believe, uh, is neither supersessionist nor dispensationalist, but covenantalists that affirm that God's purpose for the conversion of Israel in the future as a nation is bound together with his purpose for the enlargement of Christ's church throughout the whole world. The whole purpose of Israel is not to remain distinct and separate from the church, but to be brought into the church and the enlargement of Christ's church throughout the whole world. That's the millennial blessing that we await Yes, there continue to be national distinctions. There'll be, again, Christ church within Israel, Christ church within the various nations of the world. So there'll still be national distinctions, but not separate purposes that God has in store for these different nations. They will all be purposed together in the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 26, the Old Testament prophecy applied by Paul to the future conversion of the nation of Israel is found in Isaiah 59, 20, where it reads, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. There uh, we read that the um, the Redeemer will come to Zion in Isaiah 59.20. Whereas Paul says in verse 26, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. Out of Zion. So the Old Testament prophecy says to Zion. This in Romans 11 says out of Zion. So what is, what's going on here? Is Jesus coming out of Zion or is he coming to Zion? Well, I, I suggest that, again, Paul, what Paul is teaching here uh, is if we combine one other Old Testament passage, and I think this happens in quotations from the Old Testament, uh, many times they uh, join together Old Testament passages um, and don't make that clear distinction that this particular passage is from this text and this particular passage is from this text, but they may combine elements uh, of two different passages uh, into one citation uh, within, the old, within the New Testament. And I, I submit that in Psalm 14.7 is where we read this, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. And so I believe that Paul here is taking Isaiah 59, 20 and Psalm 14, 7 and combining them when he says in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, 
as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. But here, it's important again uh, to realize Paul I, is not saying that all the promises concerning Israel in the Old Testament have been realized now in the church. Um, that is, again, the position of supersessionists, uh, that all of the promises made to Israel are fulfilled presently in the church, that there is not a future uh, for Israel uh, as a nation uh, by way of it uh, coming to salvation through Christ. But he's quoting, Paul's quoting Old Testament passages basically to demonstrate that there is a future salvation coming to Israel as a nation. And uh, so again, I simply note that when Paul says uh, that the deliverer shall come out of Zion, what is Zion? What does uh, that refer to? Where is Zion? Well, there, there is a heavenly Zion. Uh, there is a heavenly Jerusalem. But there's also an earthly Zion uh, as well. And in that earthly Zion, Jesus is said to be the chief cornerstone uh, that was laid in Zion. That Zion in which Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone is the church. For in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, Peter compares the church using the, the present church spiritually, using language from the Old Testament concerning the temple and the priesthood, and speaks of us being, again, a spiritual house being a spiritual temple, offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Notice what Peter says. Ye also, speaking to Jewish believers, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, that is the temple, the house of God, and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God by Jesus Christ. Now notice this uh, portion of, that we find in 1 Peter 2.6. So he's talking about <clears throat> the church. And he goes on to say, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So what is the building, the spiritual building, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone for? It's the church. That's Zion. Uh, and so what Paul, I would submit to you, is saying is that the deliverer shall come out of Zion, will come out of the church. He'll come as the deliverer out of the church to rescue and to save his people, Israel, from their sins. He'll do so through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus comes to us through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes to us. We can't see him. But he, when his word goes forth, he accompanies his word. He comes forth. And so the preaching of the gospel will come forth from the church at that time uh, in the future. The fullness of the Gentiles will come into the church and the gospel will, will sound forth gloriously into Israel. Jesus Christ will come out of Zion to bless his word and to save his people at that time. And again, to show that this is not uh, some novel idea that, that I've thought of, uh, I'm, I'm not, an origi I'm not a, a cre creatively uh, talented and gifted, 
Uh, that's not my gift, uh, but I, I do read, I do study what God's people have said uh, throughout history with regard to uh, the interpretation of God's word. Uh, their interpretation is not infallible, only God's word is infallible. And yet I learn much from the study of what God's people have said throughout history. And uh, let me just cite a couple places in John Brown of Wamfrey lived from 1610 to 1679, was a faithful covenanted minister in the Church of Scotland. And he writes in his commentary on Romans and on this particular passage, he says, when the Lord shall come unto the Jews, it will be out of his Zion among the Gentiles, out of his church there. He'll come out of his church. Likewise, the Westminster Annotations, uh, which was uh, written in 1651, uh, which was a compilation uh, by a number of men, many who were, uh, attended the Westminster Assembly at that time. Uh, in their comments on this particular portion of God's word, and particularly out of Zion, they, they note that it is out of the midst of the church where he, that is Christ, hath his dwelling and abode by his spirit, will he call and recollect the Jews again out of his church. Peter, uh, in Acts chapter 3, I think helps us to understand that when the, the word of God is faithfully preached, Jesus is sent forth. Jesus comes. And if we lose that, if we lose that idea that Jesus comes to us when the word of God is faithfully preached, then we might as well just consider the word of God like any other book. There's something special about the declaration, the faithful preaching of God's word. It's not just me that's speaking to you. It's Jesus that is speaking to you when his word is faithfully preached. The Apostle Peter says this in Acts chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. And he's speaking to the Jews at that time. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, that is to you Jews, Unto you first, God, having raised up his son, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Notice the order. Unto you first, Peter says, unto you Jews first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. So the question is, when did he send when did God send Jesus to bless them? It was sometime after the time that Jesus was raised from the dead. He sent Jesus, God sent Jesus to bless his people. I submit to you that God sent Jesus to bless his people on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when 3,000 were saved, were converted on that particular day. It was because Jesus sent or God sent Jesus to bless his people. He didn't come visibly, but he was sent nevertheless in a very real way. By his spirit, he was sent. Jesus said that he would give us the Holy Spirit when he went to heaven. The Holy Spirit is the one whom Jesus has sent to represent him here upon the earth. But Jesus was sent so if Jesus was sent on the day of Pentecost and not visibly, Jesus will be sent by the preaching of the gospel from the church of Jesus Christ in a future time with such power and glory, Jesus will be sent to convert the Jews at that time. That's what this passage, I believe, is teaching. That out of Zion, out of his church, God will send forth a deliverer, Jesus, to save and to deliver his people. 
This will be the means, the primary means that the Lord will use to convert the nations, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to convert Israel. And that being the case, that being the, the, the miraculous power of God in the preaching of the gospel to change hearts and to change lives, what should we think about preaching as you're sitting there today? As you prepare to come to worship today, did you prepare yourself to come and to hear Jesus speak unto you? Or simply to hear me speak unto you? Did you prepare your hearts to receive Jesus sent unto you through the gospel of Christ? Did you prepare your heart to receive Jesus to change your heart, to change your marriage, to change your relationships. Because Jesus is present. Jesus is here to change the hearts and lives of people. But if we turn a dull ear, then how are we his sheep who hear his voice and follow him? Through the faithful preaching of his word. This won't take as long. The, the second question, why will all Israel as a nation be saved? In verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sin. The four there at the beginning. Why should this, why will this salvation occur? Why? Because for this is my covenant with them with Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation will be saved because the Lord is gracious and because the Lord will remember his covenant. This is my covenant with them. He will remember his covenant that he made with his people as a nation from the Old Testament period of time. Let me be quick to add that this is not a different covenant with Israel than the covenant he makes with all who believe in him, Jews and Gentiles alike. There is only one covenant, as there's only one gospel, as there's only one church, there's only one covenant of grace to save sinners through Jesus Christ. And that covenant was revealed to Adam in Genesis 3.15 when the Lord said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, that is the seed of the woman, Jesus, shall bruise thy head, Satan's head, and thou shalt bruise his heel, that is through his death. His heel, Jesus' heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent uh, through his death and his resurrection. Likewise, this covenant is revealed in Genesis 17, 7 with Abraham. <coughs> where the Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. That refrain, to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee is what really defines a covenant as we continue to work our way through the Old and New Testament. This same covenant was revealed to Israel in Leviticus 26, 12, where God says, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Whenever you hear that language, that they would be God's people, or we will be God's people, that is covenant language. It's also revealed to believers in the New Testament in Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. This is uh, again uh, a covenant in the new covenant. <clears throat> was originally made with Israel but we again are brought into as Gentiles who believe in Christ into that same covenant, that same new covenant. Uh, Israel has turned the back upon that new covenant, uh, but they shall 
in the future be restored by way of, as we see here, and this is my covenant with them. They will be restored. They will be saved on the basis of that same new covenant that we're saved by. The New Testament, Jesus says, in my blood. The New Testament or new covenant in my blood is the same covenant that we are saved by, that Israel in the future shall be saved by as well. And in the new heaven and new earth, again, it's simply the full realization of that new covenant. In Revelation 21.3, I heard a great voice out of the heavens saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That same covenantal language uh, that we have uh, seen in these other verses. <clears throat> Paul quotes two more uh, Old Testament passages in Romans 11:27 to confirm why God will save all Israel as a nation. Uh, when he says, for this is my covenant unto them, that's taken from Isaiah 59:21, And then, uh, when I shall take away their sins. Now, that's not a, uh, that will not be found in as, as far as a specific um, using exactly the same words, the same language, but the idea, and DePaul is allowed, again, to paraphrase certain, uh, certain passages from the Old Testament that, uh, that he's using by, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in, in these verses in Romans 11. But I submit to you that the second part of Romans 11:27, when I shall take away their sins, is what is being said in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, 34, where God says, For I will forgive their iniquity and rem will remember their sin no more. John Calvin likens uh, God's gracious covenant. Um, just to put a picture before you, he likens God's gracious covenant to the foundation of salvation. And God's promises are like, again, that which is built upon the foundation. The covenant is foundational, the promises that God makes to us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God promises to provide for all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yea and amen. All the promises are built upon that covenant that God has made with his people. And it's very, very important, I think, for us to realize the covenant is not incidental. It's not uh, something we can throw out and simply talk about, um, you know, only the gospel. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, dear ones, is built upon the covenant that God has sworn that he will keep his promises. That if we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that we will be saved. That's a covenant that he has sworn. It's firm and it's unalterable. That's why we can have great hope. That's why we can have faith and trust that God is going to keep his word. The gospel, again, is glorious, the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's built upon this covenant that God makes with us, his people. The Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 18, speaking about this covenant that he made with Abraham, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise that would be not only those believing Jews, but us who believe now, <clears throat> Gentiles, abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That is, a covenant that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. You see what he's saying is two immutable things. The first immutable thing is God's oath and his covenant 
and the second are his prom would be his promises. Uh, two immutable things. God's covenant cannot change. And God's promises will not change. <clears throat> the Dutch annotations uh, written again in Dutch in 1637 and translated into English 1657. These, these annotations were commissioned by the church, um, the Reformed Church in Holland, the Netherlands, at that, uh, commissioned in 1618 at the Synod of Dort. Uh, and so what is said here was approved by an entire nation, uh, uh, the, the Christian nation, the Reformed nation uh, of the Netherlands. Uh, and notice again what they say with regard to this particular verse. And this is a covenant unto them, namely, to the Jews who for this cause, seeing this covenant is firm and unchangeable, shall be converted to the faith, that thereby their sins may be forgiven and taken away. So this is the new covenant. When we read and Paul saying in Romans eleven twenty seven, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. This is the new covenant wherein God promises to forgive the nation of Israel her sins when Israel turns in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. Won't happen until faith until Israel turns in faith and repentance. But it will happen because God will bring it to pass through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Israel will be brought into the church of the new covenant where though there are national distinctions, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, as we see in Isaiah 19, yet those distinctions do not now nor will they ever divide us into two distinct olive trees, two distinct brides, two distinct kingdoms. There's only one church. Paul makes clear that all of Israel shall be saved in the future. Why? Because the Lord has covenanted in the Old Testament to do so. He has sworn. Does God need to take an oath? God doesn't take an oath in order to make him more faithful. He can't be more faithful than he is. Why does he take an oath? He does it for our benefit. He does it for our encouragement that he is going to keep his promises. He's going to keep his covenant. And this is what, and why Paul brings this to the fore here in Romans eleven twenty seven. God says, the Lord says, this is my covenant with them. This is the covenant in Christ's blood. By way of application, as we bring the sermon to a close, thank you for your attention today. Sometimes, again, um, we're not just kind of wading through the weeds, you know, in a very general sense. We're getting down to the, the root of a lot of things, and it becomes a little more technical. And, and I appreciate very much your attention in following uh, the, uh, the discussion and the sermon today. But... Now as we come to the close, I want to make some application to, to our lives. <clears throat> God's faithfulness to keep his covenant with Israel uh, gives to us today an unshakable hope that he will keep his covenant with us. That he will keep his covenant with me. That he will keep his covenant with you. Just as he will keep his covenant with Israel as a nation. He's the same covenant keeping God. It's the same covenant, the new covenant. If he is going to keep his new covenant of grace with Israel as a nation, he's going to keep his new covenant of grace with you and with me who trust in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation. As I said earlier, the gospel of Jesus Christ is based upon the new covenant, upon the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promised a seed who was to come, the Lord Jesus, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. This is, again, 
the new covenant of grace, which delivers us from the covenant of works, the covenant of works which condemns us because we cannot faithfully keep all of God's law. And when we are only under a covenant of works, we stand condemned, all of us. And that's the covenant that we are under when we are brought into this world, is a covenant of works, the same covenant that God made with Adam that Adam failed to keep. And that same covenant in that he represented all his posterity continues to condemn all of mankind. But God, in rich in mercy, established a covenant of grace through Jesus Christ to rescue and to save us from our sin and to save even nations, as he will do in the future. As he has done in the past as nations, as England, Ireland, and Scotland did covenant to be God's people in 1643. They've fallen away from that covenant. But nevertheless, they covenanted as nations to be God's people, and God will hold them to that. They, as well, are a covenant-breaking nation, or nations today. And likewise, dear ones, since God is a covenant-keeping God, a second application, he will not forget national covenants that were made with him, as we just noted, even if they were made with God many hundreds of years ago, as in the Solemn League and Covenant in 1643. God doesn't forget covenants that are made. I'm reminded uh, back in Joshua chapter 9 of a covenant that the Israelites made with the Jebusites. And uh, that covenant continued to be binding upon Israel 500 years later. Uh, uh, it seems though probably many people had forgotten about the covenant that was made with Israel made with the Jebusites uh, uh, to protect them, uh, to not slaughter them. They were a Canaanite people. Uh, they deceived uh, Joshua, uh, said that they were a nation far away when they were a nation nearby, and yet they wanted to be under the protection of Jehovah God, under the protection of Israel. And they were brought into uh, Israel as a covenanted people. But Saul, King Saul, began slaying the Jebusites to purge Israel of the Jebusites some four to five hundred years later. And God brings judgment. God brings judgment upon Israel, sends the plague upon Israel because they had violated and broken this covenant with the Jebus Jebusites. It tells us God doesn't forget covenants made even nations. In Amos 1, 9 through 10, there's a brotherly covenant between uh, the king of Tyre and Israel. Um, Hiram, the king of Tyre, made a covenant with David and with Solomon. And they went back uh, later on, uh, a couple hundred years after that. They turned over Israelites uh, into the hand of the Edomites who hated Israel rather than protecting them. And God says he's going to judge Tyre, the nation of Tyre, a couple hundred years later because they violated a, bro a brotherly covenant. God doesn't forget covenants. Another application, God takes our covenants seriously, whether they be church covenants as members of Christ's church, whether they be marriage covenants, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, whether they be uh, contracts, whether they be uh, contracts that we make in our business, we need and must be a people who honor covenants especially covenants with God, but even covenants with one another. God doesn't forget when we become a covenant-breaking people, when we turn our backs upon our covenants they've made with God and with one another. 
personal covenants, vows that we make with God. God does not forget. And finally, none of us, I want to say, none of us will perfectly keep the covenants that we've made. None of us are flawless. None of us are uh, uh, sinless. None of us perfectly keep those covenants. That's why we have a covenant keeper in the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world and perfectly kept the covenant for us, his people. So that in every way that we break God's covenant, we who trust in Jesus, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us and kept the covenant perfectly. So that there is only life, eternal life, in covenant with Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Praise God for his covenant faithfulness in spite of our covenant breaking, that we can go to him, our covenant keeper, seek his forgiveness and plead that his righteousness, his covenant keeping would be applied unto us, his people. Dear ones, as we close, let this be a time of covenant renewal in your own heart, right where you're sitting, that you renew your covenant with God, that you renew your covenant with one another as God's people within this church of Jesus Christ, that you renew your covenant with your spouse, that we be a covenant keeping people not because we are sinless but because when we fail we repent we turn from our sins we don't simply utter the words I repent please forgive me but we walk that we seek by God's grace to turn from those wicked ways looking to Jesus Christ the author and the finisher of our faith and whose name we give thanks.